Thank you, friends. Do keep your Bibles open. Let me give you just a bit of background as to what we're doing this morning. And particularly if you're here as a guest or a visitor, you've joined us at the end of a, um, a six-week series thinking about our current culture. So we are on the sixth of six weeks. Um, and what we've done over the last six weeks or so is we have tried to analyse culture at the moment... Um, pulling apart different threads and ideas, and then sought to apply the Bible, the Scriptures, the Gospel, to those, those, those ideas. So in the first week, we um, thought about phones and how phones have dominate, and we are in a time of real technological growth and what that is doing to us. Um, in the second week, we talked about the concept of adulting and the delayed desire to take responsibility and um, kind of move on with life. Third week, we talked about safety, and our safety is a great big theme for the current iGen, who would be 23 and below, but also millennials too, 40 and below. Um, safety physically, but also safety verbally, and the idea of emotional safety and words. Um, fourth week, we thought about polarisation and how we're very tribal at the moment, um, as exemplified by the rugby. Uh, fifth week was anxiety last week, as Jill was um, reminding us and the children. And then this week, we're thinking about sort of spirituality. Um, and I'm aware that that is an incredibly broad topic, so I'll be making sweeping generalizations that you can come and challenge me on later, um, but I'm aware of that. So if you're just visiting us, um, a very warm welcome to you. Um, please do grab a welcome pack from the back. That will give you a snapshot of some of the things that we care about. Um, I'm going to... Uh, a conversation last week as well, um, at the end of these six weeks, someone said to me last Sunday after the service... You know, I am really enjoying these, but I'm, I'm looking forward to getting back to expositional week-by-week -week Bible teaching. Um, so am I. Um, so this is the last one, and if you can bear with me on this, then we'll be um, with Dave next week going through 2 Peter. Um, let me lead us in prayer, and then we'll have a think about this topic now. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity these last six weeks to just take a step back from our culture to try and understand a bit more of it, of what's going on at the moment and why, and of how to consider it and think about it from a, a perspective through your scriptures. Uh, be with us, please, that we might live well in this world, that we might be trusting your gospel, that we might see why Jesus is such good news um, for now, and for some of these threads and themes that we've been thinking about. Be at work, please, among us this morning as we um, consider this final topic, but as we look at your word from Romans 1 as well. Um, speak to us, please. We don't simply want a better grasp of the passage. We want to know you better. We want to know ourselves better. And so be at work, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Um, a local author called Philip Pullman, who some of you will be aware of, is about to... Um, hit the headlines again. Here is his uh, relatively famous trilogy of children's books. Um, a number of you will have probably read them. Um, I think that's they're the initial covers. Um, there are some newer ones as well, which look a bit nicer. Um, they're about to hit the headlines again because they've been filming in Oxford um, since last summer um, for the BBC uh, a series based on these three. Um, if you've not read them, essentially they are a fantasy story um, based on a search for God, but in a world that's quite like our own, um, based in Oxford originally, uh, but a world in which God is not the creator, 
Um, He is not all-powerful. In fact, he is just an angel. But it's quite sad, really. He's an angel who is simply aging rapidly. He's being preserved and manipulated by this um, mysterious ecclesiastical body called the Magisterium. Um, And what happens is the three books develop, as you go from um, left to right, blue to orange, is Pullman's anti-God sentiment gets heightened. The volume goes up each time. And it culminates in the amber spyglass. Um, A couple of passages from that just to illustrate something of this. Um, I'm not going to explain who the different people are because you need to read it. Um, Or come and chat to me afterwards. Well, where is God, said Mrs. Coulter, if he's alive? And why doesn't he speak anymore? At the beginning of the world, God walked in the garden and spoke with Adam and Eve. And then he began to withdraw. And Moses only heard his voice. Later in the time of Daniel, he was aged, he was ancient of days. Where is he now? Is he still alive at some inconceivable age, decrepit and demented and unable to think or act or speak and unable to die? And if this is is his condition, wouldn't it be the most merciful thing, the truest proof of our love for God to seek him out and give him the gift of death, she says. A bit later in the book, the two main protagonists in the in the book, are a girl called Lyra and a boy called Will. And, and eventually they find this God um, imprisoned in a crystal cage. Lyra says, oh, Will, he's, he's still alive, but the poor thing. Will saw her hands pressing against the crystal, trying to reach to the angel and comfort him. Because he was so old and he was terrified, crying like a baby and cowering away into the lowest corner. He must be so old. I've, I've never seen anyone suffering like that. Oh, Oh, Will, can't we let him out? Will cut through the crystal in one movement and and reached in to help the angel out, demented and powerless. The aged being could only weep and mumble in fear and pain and misery. And he shrunk away from what seemed like yet another threat. It's all right, said Will. We can help you hide at least. Come on, we won't hurt you. The shaking hand seized his and feebly he held on. The old one was stuttering, a wordless, groaning whimper, and went on and on, grinding his teeth. But as Lyra tried to reach in and help him out, he he tried to smile and bow. And his ancient eyes, deep in their wrinkles, blinked at her with innocent wonder. Between them, they helped the Ancient of Days out of his crystal cell. It wasn't hard, for he was as light as paper. And he would have followed them anywhere, having no will of his own. And responding to simple kindness like a flower to the sun. But in the open air, there was nothing to stop the wind from damaging him. And to their dismay, his form began to loosen and dissolve. Only a few moments later, he had vanished completely. And their last impression was of those eyes, blinking in wonder, and a sigh of the most profound and exhausted relief. Of course, maybe in today's world, This picture of God resonates with what we see around us, with Western Europe littered with so many empty church buildings, church buildings being made into all kinds of alternative venues, music venues, skate parks, cafes. Would the average person on the street recognize something of Pullman's picture with this aged, weak God? He's had his day, he's as light as paper, and soon... Perhaps for the better he'll be gone, dissolving into nothingness. Of course, Pullman is a staunch atheist. 
He has a very stark agenda. But this idea of God dying is nothing new in our culture. I mean, notwithstanding the example of the cross, we can come back to that another time, but God is dead was a famous statement by the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, widely expressing the idea that because of the Enlightenment, so we had killed the possibility of belief in God, of, of any gods having ever existed. We're beyond that now, was the idea. Trouble is, when it comes down to it, the Enlightenment seemed to bring a fair amount of confusion and darkness. Or how about John Lennon back in the 60s? He did seem to soften in later years, but in 66 he famously said in an interview that the Beatles were more popular than Jesus. That the public was more infatuated with the Beatles than with um, Christianity and that rock music might outlast it, predicting that, it, that the church would vanish and shrink, he said. And yet maybe it's not just out there somewhere. Maybe you know something of... That reality is you experience and you feel that pressure day to day. You know what it's increasingly like to be in the minority, to feel that awkwardness with, some, with people. You're a Christian in the office and a new colleague comes in and, and finds out you're a Christian and you, you just kind of feel a bit weird. They look at you strangely. Maybe it's a new neighbor moves into your street in a similar situation and you just kind of almost apologetic about it. Oxford and all its intellectual progress and prowess and arrogance looms over us sat here on a Sunday morning in a primary school gym on chairs made for nine-year-olds. And we can end up feeling very small and very weak and just a bit weird. Some have called um, Western Europe and the West perhaps more particularly a, a cut flower culture. We've said this before, it's as if we are beautiful flowers in a vase, but we've been cut off from our Judeo-Christian roots. And we're beautiful for now, but we are dying. We're beginning to wilt. It's a culture that's walked out on God and left all kinds of confusion as to well, where does human value and worth and dignity come from in a world without God? And that's certainly part of the picture. There certainly is a, a rising number of nuns, N-O-N-E-S, a growing number of people who, who say they have no religion or faith, or they would actively call themselves atheist or agnostic. There's a surprising mix of beliefs, though. It's not just a wholesale walking out on God, but actually a willingness to explore. And that, as Dorm's already mentioned, mentioned we've come at the end of a week of events in the centre of Oxford with Tim Keller coming to the UK, and um, I know... The room was packed out a number of nights. Good questions, good people asking um, really good things. And indeed, a number of people trusting Christ for themselves for the first time this last week. Praise the Lord. Or maybe it's the weekly, the search, Monday night events that actually began four years ago after a similar um, week of events. Costa Coffee on Queen Street, Monday nights, four years of people sat around tables considering, them, considering the reality of Christ for themselves. Um, talks and Bible studies, and, and indeed a, an encouraging number of believers trickling in. Um, some of you will know Catherine Shand, um, 
She's running a Christianity Explored group in her front room um, on Monday nights. We'll hear more about that for next week. Or, or we can be praying for John T. Alcock, um, who's a FIEC pastor from London down at the Globe, who's speaking at Oxford Brooks this next week. Um, board and lodgings with the, uh, the Leavers. Thank you very much, Peter and Gwyneth. Um, so it's not as if everybody is hardened against it. Actually, that's a, a real surprise for many. But actually, at the grassroots level, what seems to be happening is we're having to go right back to basics. People don't have that Judeo-Christian worldview so much anymore. They don't know the Bible. They don't know who we mean when we talk about the God of the Bible anymore. In fact, one of the reasons, again, perhaps as Dave was saying, for our current greenhouse thing starting tonight, is to think a bit more about evangelism, how we can be better at both understanding the gospel for ourselves, but then communicating it in a way, and boldly, sensitively, with those in our weeks, day by day, helping us and helping others to, to see why Jesus is such good news. Again, that is part of the picture when it comes to spirituality at the moment. Another interesting part that I wanted to just bring up as well, um, which I think is fair, is that I think many are beginning to find the sort of new atheism, which was all the rage a number of years ago, um, unsatisfactory. There's a pushback now, which is really striking. Um, John Perkins, thank you, John, sent me a really helpful article last week um, from The Guardian. I think it's probably about 10 days old now, if you, if you want to Google it. Um, and it's a, it, it's, a, it's a discussion, really, about the so-called self-styled four horsemen of the new atheism apocalypse. So what happened in the early noughties... Um, soon after 9-11, many predicted the death of God, the, the death of religion. This would finally be it. Here are the nails in the coffin of God. And so um, these four guys, a man called Sam Harris, he began writing a book called The End of Faith, 2004. It's a bestseller. It was a bestseller. And a philosopher, Daniel Dennett, who wrote a book called Breaking the Spell. That's Sam Harris in the black, Daniel Dennett with the beard. Um, and then... To the far left, we've got um, Christopher Hitchens, who wrote God is Not Great. And then the last guy, some of you will recognize, is a man called Richard Dawkins, again, a local guy here. And it was touted as an atheist revolution, and it gained traction at the time. But I think it hugely overpromised. It's really interesting. What's happening now is that people are beginning to see the ways in which it overpromised. If you read the article, let me just read a little bit to you, but... They're commenting on a video of the four of them being filmed. Um, uh, and the, the, uh, the journalist says this. He says, new, atheism, new atheism's arguments were never very sophisticated or historically informed. You will find in this conversation no acknowledgement of the progress made by medieval Islamic civilization in medicine and mathematics. The horsemen always assume that religion has always been an impediment to science, dismissing famous religious scientists as inexplicable outliers. At one point, Harris complains about a leading geneticist who's also a Christian. He says this. He says, this guy seems to think that on Sunday you can kneel down in the dewy grass and give yourself to Jesus because you're in the presence of a frozen waterfall. And on Monday you can be a, a physical geneticist. He says, Harris offers no reason why he can't, except that the combination is incompatible with his own narrow-mindedness. It's striking. The article speaks as to where they've ended up now. Um, Dennett... The Beard returned to questions of philosophy. Dawkins, most famously, but almost as a 
parody of himself now. He's really a bit of an internet troll. Touring and stirring, but mostly commenting on Twitter. Sam Harris is a political extremist who aligns himself or is aligned largely with the alt-right. And then Hitchens died a few years ago. I'm another Oxford man, I'm Alastair McGrath, commenting on new atheism where it seems to have led, said this. Um, he's a, he's a, a, a man who sits at the interface of kind of science and religion particularly, science and faith. He says this, he says, when all is said and done, the new atheism is a rhetorically supercharged agnosticism that hopes the ferocity of its words will divert attention from the poverty of its arguments. I think there's a backlash from kind of mainstream media. These aren't Christians writing, although McGrath was. This is, these are our secular journalists who are realizing that there's been an overpromising. And where's that left us? Of course, if you dig a bit deeper into the God that they are so very angry at and so very sure they don't believe in, it turns out that God isn't really the God of the Bible either, but it's a caricature of straw man. That's another part of the picture. The final part of the picture, though, as to where we will end up um, this morning is perhaps a more surprising one, and it seems to be that the beliefs of the younger iGen culture is that the the idea of God or of the divine is not entirely disposed of. It's not entirely being thrown away. Rather, what seems to happen is that the gods or gods that they believe in are, are shaped and fashioned and molded into the kind of God we want him to be. The kind of God who, who serves our wants. The kind of God who is essentially there for my purposes. Which is why I wanted us to zoom into um, Romans 1. I'm, I'm going to read again, just from 16 to, to 25, and then we'll have a think about that, and then we'll go back into sort of iGen talk for a bit, and then we'll come back into the last bit again. We deliberately started at verse 16 as well, and that is where we will end up. Verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First for the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it's written, the righteous will live by faith. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they, they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings birds and animals and reptiles. And therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Have a look at how he, he, he sets it up there in verse 16. This, this idea of being ashamed... 
Friends, I think in our culture, it can be an easy temptation for us to be ashamed of the gospel. It sounds so out of keeping with our our modern culture, with the kind of stuff we've been thinking about these last six weeks. It sounds embarrassing to talk of, of sin, to talk of a God who cares about what you do and indeed might not agree with what you do. The kind of God who says, no, perhaps you're not entitled. Perhaps you're not at the heart of your world. Perhaps I am. And I take it Paul knew something of that for a different context. He knew perhaps what it might be to be tempted to be ashamed. Or else why would he stress the point to say that he's not? We'll come back to that at the end. But notice as well verse 18, and there's something quite astounding and it's scary. It's the kind of thing that I, if I'm honest, I forget. Do you see, God's wrath is being revealed, present tense. It's a now thing. There will be a judgment to come, but this is a now thing. This is a today thing. At this moment, at this point in time, his wrath is being revealed. And what does that look like? Well, to explain it, Paul gives us these three cycles in the passage. Three wheels, if you like. Verse 21 to 24, and it's 25 to 27, and 28 to 32. And essentially, the process each time goes like this. Number one, people suppress the truth about God and believe something false. Okay, so they stop believing in God and believe something else. Number two, they, they live a different way, therefore. What we believe affects how we live. And then thirdly, though, here's the surprising bit. God gives them over to what they want. God gives them over to what they want. I wonder if God is giving us what we want in our culture, in our world at the moment. In a world of individualism and comfort and entitlement and where I sit at the center and where I struggle to be thankful, then God says, okay, if they're the gods you want to run after, then then you can have those things. And then you'll see where you end up. And then you'll see how life doesn't work. actually it's striking because what happens is those little gods that society serves they actually end up shaping our understanding of who God is that seems to be the application in our culture at the moment both of them are our idolatry one we serve little gods that we think will make us happy but then that morphs into another kind of idolatry where we shape God to be like those little gods. And so we worship comfort. And we think God wants me to be comfortable. Of course he does. Or, or we worship things. And we think well of course God wants me to have things. Or we worship happiness. And so we think that God only wants me to be happy. And I see that in my own heart. But it is idolatry. It is, it is us creating God in our image. And I think we do it all the time. In fact, it was Tim Keller um, 
he said, not last week, but another time, he said, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshipping an idealised version of yourself. Isn't that striking? The thing is, though, again, this is nothing new. This is just a present iteration of it. The idea of God being shaped and moulded to fit us and our desires is not something that is has just happened in the last couple of years. It's of huge relevance. There's the rise of so-called prosperity theology or sometimes word of faith theology. Those things are, are big and they are out there and they happen. They happen locally. They happen globally. The idea that faithfulness essentially will result in, in blessing, usually financial or physical blessing in some way. It can be a very damaging thing. Of course, there's truth in that, and that's where it's particularly dangerous. But when it's all about that, when there is no nuance, when only certain passages are focused and zoomed in on rather than the entirety of Scripture or the example of Jesus or the example of Paul, it can be very damaging, particularly when suffering comes. I wanted to um, introduce you as well to a particular way this has kind of worked out in the last 15 years or so um, and it's particularly in um, sorry for Dorman Blythe leaving this morning particularly for in American churches um, that wasn't deliberate at all uh, but I think it's here as well I really do and it's, it's something called moralistic therapeutic deism 2005 there were studies undertaken interviewing um, usually church going teenagers about what they believed and they saw five key threads as to what teenagers believed. And it's kind of a cultural Christianity. It's on the screen there for you. Number one, the first thread they examined was a God who exists, who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. It's okay. Number two, oh, hang on, God wants people to be good, nice and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Number five, good people go to heaven when they die. Do you see the way in which God has been shaped to reflect us and what we want to be true. See the things that have been removed? There's no cross there. Because sin has been removed, because God's righteousness or anger has been removed, judgment has been removed, and actually he's just there, number three, as a, as a life mechanic, as a counsellor when things go wrong, because the central goal of life is about me and me being happy and me feeling good about myself. I am at the heart of it. I am entitled to the kind of life that I want. And in Romans 1, people exchange the truth about God for a lie. And in the West, in a world of entitlement, we seem to have exchanged the truth about God for a lie, reshaping him in such a way that he serves us. 
and for my Christian life to be about me and me being satisfied and me getting what I want. And in Romans 1, do you see, God gives people over to what they want and to what they worship. Just look very briefly with me at those three cycles together. It will be brief. There'll be more time in home groups to dig into this. But for, firstly, verse 21 to 24, they, they suppress the truth about God. And although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, verse 21, nor gave thanks to him. Don't we live in a world of unthankfulness? Their thinking became futile, their foolish hearts were darkened, and so they, they exchange God for images, and God gives them what they want. This idea of sexual impurity, the degrading of their bodies to each other. Similar cycle then, verse 25 to 27, similar words. They, they exchange the truth about God again, worshipping and serving created things. And we say, well, I, we don't do that, we're, we're far more advanced, but... But the kind of things we worship and serve, I take it are the things we daydream about having and the things where we have nightmares if we don't have them. G.K. Chesterton famously said, when we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing, we, we worship anything. And again, the consequences of rebellion for this false worship is he gives them over to what they want. You want to be degraded? Go and degrade yourselves. And you get verse 24 and 26 and 27, people simply become tools or apparatus for, for me to have the sexual experience that I want. It's about me. And we need to be clear, Paul has not got a hang-up about sex. I think the reason he, he zooms in on that here is because it is such a fundamental example of Genesis 1 and 2 being challenged. The order of creation being flipped over. Something fundamentally about us, and yet we want to be like God. I wonder as well if Paul knows that, that it hurts, that, that wrong use of sex can ruin people's lives. A story is told by the journalist Malcolm Muggeridge. Um, he once met a woman who he was told had slept with the writer H.G. Wells at a party. And he asked her how it happened. And she told him that Wells had, a, had approached her at a party and said, shall we go upstairs and do something funny? And was it funny? Asked Muggeridge. No, sir, it was not funny, she replied. That evening has caused me more misery than any other evening of my life. And you see, God is removed and sex goes topsy-turvy and the world goes wrong and people get hurt and life is not as it was meant to be lived. The point Paul is making there in Romans 1, his conclusion is that we all appear somewhere on the list. We are so quick to point the fingers at others and we can be accused of being obsessed with sex as Christians. And we zoom in on particular sins and yet we miss our own struggles. So have a look with me at um, the third little cycle, verse 28 to 32. I'm going to read them again. And I want you, as I read them, I want you to tell me which of these things has been eradicated by human progress. Verse 20, 28. Furthermore, 
Just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. 2,000 years on, how have we done? None of them, they're still there, aren't they? Paul's point is, all sin is unnatural, not as things were meant to be. All sin flows from a denying of the way that things were created to be in the world. And the reality is, we are caught up in the crossfire of a world that's walked out on God, and we've been hit by bullets, but we've fired our fair share of bullets too. And for our culture now, it seems to be what's happened is to get rid of the reality of sin, either you get rid of God entirely, and certainly that seems to have happened. There are more nuns, N-O-N-E-S. There are more people who would claim to be an atheist, who have done away with the God of the Bible. Either you get rid of God from the equation, or you reshape your faith in such a way that God is really all about you and doesn't mind that much. And suddenly we slide into messages about God wanting you to live your life to the full and, and less about the reality of God in the present judging people and allowing them to have what they want as part of his present judgment. But I think Paul would be clear. I wonder if he were to speak into our culture as he looks at it and sees it under the present judgment of God, people looking for life in all the wrong places. I wonder if he would say, brothers and sisters, have a humble confidence because you have what they need. Because you have the gospel. And so don't be ashamed of it. You might feel foolish, you might feel weak, you might feel stupid, you might know what it is to be looked down upon, but it's always been God's plan. Don't be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. Speak up. I heard a lovely story um, as I was thinking about preaching this passage. And it's a story of a young girl who, um, who is really ashamed of her mother's hands. Her mum's hands were red and raw and scarred. And as her mum picked her up from school and her friends saw her hands, she would, she would wince, she would be embarrassed. All because of these hands. And one day she plucks up courage and she goes up to her mum and she asks her, Mum, why are your hands like that? And her mum explained that when she, when the girl was a baby, um, there had been a fire in her bedroom and the cot had caught fire and her mum had reached into the flames um, and rescued her. And in so doing, her hands had been burnt and scarred horribly, but, but she had saved her daughter. 
And the little girl simply took her mum's hands and she kisses them. How, how could she be ashamed anymore of something that brought her such life? And you see, friends, we have the answer. We have the answer to the life that this world is looking for. And the answer is the gospel. We have what they need. We have the bread they are looking for. We have the medicine that they long for. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, would you, would you forgive us if ever we feel ashamed of the gospel, if we feel foolish, if we feel weak, if we feel looked down upon, sidelined, weird? Help us again to trust that we have what the world needs because we have you. We have the gospel, the power of God that brings salvation, that brings life. Father in heaven, would you open our mouths this week that we might speak of you to those around us? Would you be at work in and through us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.